From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On the evening of March 8th, the Cape Fear Community College Board of Trustees held a special meeting, called for one purpose, to discuss the removal of Trustee Ray Funderburk. The meeting was a trial of sorts. Funderburk was the defendant, the Board of Trustees was the jury, and Board Vice Chair Jason McLeod acted as lead investigator and prosecutor. He presented two main allegations against Funderburk. First, he accused Funderburk of having pressured an instructor to change a student grade. This was a dual-enrolled student whose subpar college performance meant they had become ineligible for high school sports. As evidence, McLeod presented a statement from the instructor and an email from the student's coach, but neither flat-out stated that Funderburk had asked for a grade change, and the coach attended the hearing to say his email did not impugn Funderburk. For his part, Funderburk admitted to talking to the instructor, but denied asking for a grade change, and categorically denied ever doing something like that. McLeod's argument hinged on the interpretation of Funderburk's motives, saying that because he was a trustee, it was implied he wanted the grade changed. Second, McLeod accused Funderburk of, quote, putting the college in disrepute after speaking out at a black student forum. This was a Black History Month event which had not been publicly announced and which was closed to the press, and during which black students spoke, and not always positively, about their experiences on campus. Funderburk and McLeod essentially agreed on what happened. At the end of the event, Funderburk joined others in speaking to the forum. He praised the organizers and the students who had spoken, but he asked why the public had not been invited in. Funderburk said he felt this was a legitimate question. McLeod interpreted it as insubordination, citing several anonymous accounts to suggest his comments had been hurtful. Funderburk and McLeod went back and forth for over an hour during the hearing. Then trustees got a chance to ask questions and make statements. Then, just as the hearing was drawing to a close, board chair Bill Cherry made two additional surprise allegations against Funderburk without presenting any evidence or giving Funderburk any real time to respond. And while the board did get to vote, Cherry had already made his summary judgment, accusing Funderburk of being an existential threat to the school. If he's allowed to continue on the board, he will tear down the administration and thus destroy the college. The board's vote 9-4 to four, to remove Funderburk was probably not a surprise to anyone who'd been paying attention, although Funderburk himself said he naively thought he would get a fair shake. For his part, Cherry, along with McLeod and board attorney Ken Gray, had already spoken privately with all of the trustees, and Cherry knew he had the votes. For me, as a journalist who has followed CFCC for years, it seemed Funderburk had always been on borrowed time. Top officials at the college had pushed against his nomination by the county school board, who, a bit to my surprise, bucked that pressure and unanimously appointed him anyway. Perhaps if he'd kept his head down, as many of the other board trustees seemed to do, he might have been okay. But he didn't, racking up three strikes in less than nine months. Right out of the gate, Funderbrick was the lone dissenting vote on a raise for Morton, the second 10% hike in as many years, bringing Morton's salary to over $300,000, one of the highest in the state, despite his lack of advanced degrees or experience in academics. Funderbrook said it was simply because he wasn't given any information ahead of time, but that didn't matter. Strike one. Then, Funderbrook publicly asked questions about how the college handled payroll changes to its marine tech program, 
changes that caused top staff to leave, and scuttled a semester's worth of valuable research time for students, who were left with few answers about why it had all happened. Funderburk's questions were sincere, and the college did walk back the changes. But again, it didn't matter. Strike two. Finally, Funderburk questioned the removal of his fellow trustee, Jimmy Hopkins, who had privately disagreed with President Jim Morton and quickly found himself removed under the legally dubious authority of then-county chairwoman Julia Olson Bozeman. Strike three. Okay, to help me unpack how this all went down, what the trustees had to say about it, and how Funderburk and others have reacted to it, I'm joined now by my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So let's set the scene. This meeting, hearing, trial, call it what you want, began with CFCC board attorney Ken Gray. Information was brought to the chair and he was made aware of it. It was something that was beyond the garden variety complaints that people often make. In this case, the chair thought there does appear to be smoke here. He commenced the process of having an investigation and he appointed the vice chair, Mr. McLeod, as the party that would conduct the investigation and spoke with each of the trustees individually. So you have here Ken Gray saying that McLeod and Bill Cherry did speak with each of the trustees before this hearing to pretty much tell them what they had decided. Ray Funderburg did not have that same opportunity. Yeah, and people have commented on what to call this, as we've mentioned, and a few people said this was not a trial. Well, I have to agree in the sense that none of the protections for a defendant that would be provided by the criminal justice system were in place here. You know, a prosecutor would never be allowed to sit down one-on-one with each juror before presenting evidence. That would just not happen. And another quick note here is that it seems frustrating to people who are big on open meetings law that they were able to do this as an end runaround. It is legal. It does happen all the time. And so these conversations are sort of lost to history. We will never know what they actually talked about. When the notice came out about his possible removal, Following CFCC, I saw that they likely knew that potentially they had the votes before this even started because this was a big decision to come out and do this. Yeah. All I can say about that is that it is very common for government bodies to kind of know how a vote's going to go before they take a vote. All right. So moving on, at a certain point, the issue of whether or not Ray Funderburg directly pressured this instructor to change a grade came up. And McLeod basically tried to backpedal a little bit and saying, okay, well, you didn't ask for a grade change, but maybe you implied it. Here's some clarity. Mr. Funderburg, he's not a dumb person. He's not going to come right out and ask for a grade change. But his actions spoke much louder than he did. It's never appropriate for a trustee to confront an instructor. If he needed to ask about policy, that needs to come to the administration, to the president's office, not to an instructor. And here again, we're hearing McLeod's argument that Funderburg should have gone through Jim Morton's office and shouldn't have gone directly to the instructor. And this seemed to be in part because his argument that Funderburg allegedly tried to get a grade change was kind of shaky. In fact, I wanted to point out that one of the pieces of evidence that McLeod presented was an email from the student's coach Uh, But the coach actually showed up at the hearing to say categorically, no, that's not what I meant. 
Funderbrick did not do that. He would never do that. He physically came and gave that testimony that night. Yeah, at a certain point thought maybe the hearing would be over right there. As you go back and look at my tweets, you can see I was wrong. All right, moving on. Uh, the day after the hearing, we sat down, UI and um, Zach Solon from WECT, to talk to Ray Funderbrick about how he felt the day after this hearing. And here's Ray. The allegations were very serious, but they were false. I admit that I did talk to the instructor. I never asked him to change a grade, and that's never said. It's all what everything they talked about was what I inferred. And as far as the comments I made, I did not think they were particularly damning. I wish this could have been better seen. So I was baffled by the fact that they had constructed this narrative that was far from true. And they stayed on the narrative after the coach stood up and said, no. And there, Funderburk is talking about comments he made at the Black Student Forum, where they gave their experiences being a student at Cape Fear Community College. So that's what he's talking about there. And again, the issue, as we've reported, was about whether or not you can impugn the intent of what Funderburk did. So from his point of view, he was asking a legitimate open question in the context of praising the event, saying this was a great event. I wish the public could have seen this. And the board of trustees, McLeod and Sherry in particular, were construing this as a direct attack on the college. So with all that in mind, when we sat down with Ray Funderburk, you asked him a pretty important question. And with the instructor, is there anything you regret about talking to him or going to him about anything at this point? Yes and no. I knew, and you'll see later when we talk about the past and what's going on, I knew that they pretty much were going after me wanted a reason to get rid of me. They didn't want me there in the beginning. And I gave them one. And they, it's not what happened, but they were able to make it into what happened. And that bothers me. Okay, let's pull back a, a little bit and talk about how some of the other trustees responded to this after McLeod and Funderburg had, had a chance to sort of go back and forth a little bit. First up was Lanny Wilson, right? Yes, Lanny Wilson, he said, in our orientation, we were told that any issues we have to go through Michelle Lee, who is the board liaison and the executive director of the president's office, we need to go through her or Jim. Xander Guy, he also said, anytime I have a question or a comment, I go through the administration. And Guy knows just how important it is to play by the letter of the law, because in 1990, he was sentenced to prison for defrauding his insurance company clients out of $16,000. He served three months and then was pardoned by the governor. Yes, and his comments were pretty short, just saying, go through the administration. Bruce Shell, he said, this is awkward, but then again, gave the same argument as Guy and Wilson. If you had an issue about the policy around dual enrollment students, those are high school students taking Cape Fear Community College courses. You needed to go through the administration, and you didn't honor that. And then we have Bruce Moskowitz. He said that because Ray said at the outset when he gave his testimony that this was an attack on his integrity and his character. Moskowitz said, no, this wasn't about his character, but about his judgment, and essentially saying how Ray should have felt about this situation. On the one hand, I respect what Bruce Moskowitz was doing here because it was clear Ray Funderburg was authentically hurt by the allegations against him. He invoked his father's name and his grandfather's name, his family's history of public service. And I think Moskowitz 
recognize that in saying, hey, we're not attacking who you are as a person, but maybe you made a, a judgment call. But it's hard to square that with the fact that he voted to remove Thunderbird, especially since trustee Dolores Rhodes had also put forward the idea that, hey, maybe we can find a middle way. Maybe removals, we don't have to go that hard. So again, I, I understand and respect that he saw the human element here, but it's hard to align that with his vote. And they needed the five votes to keep him on the board. Yeah, Moskowitz was the deciding, in a way, Moskowitz was the deciding vote. He was the one person that being there in the room, watching the two hour hearing, felt like he might have gone either way. Right. And here we have trustee Deborah Dix Maxwell. The tape here, apologies, is not very good. And Ben has a reason for that. But she said that she was really saddened to be here at that hearing because on trial, quote unquote, is was his integrity and also the integrity of the Board of Trustees. There was a lot of subjective and not objective comments that I heard tonight. And remember, I work in social justice and civil rights every day where people lose their jobs behind things in this type of manner. Yeah, and again, our apologies for the audio quality there. It is a difficult room to mic, and once we set up our recording equipment, we were not allowed to walk into the area where the board meets. It's in sort of a semicircular table. So uh, under penalty of law, there was a sheriff's deputy there who made it pretty clear that we were not to interfere. And again, Deborah Dix Maxwell basically saying she was seeing a lot of inference. She was hearing McLeod suggest what might have happened or what Funderburk might have intended to do. Her point was that in her work with the NAACP, she sees this happen to marginalized people all the time. Yeah, if you step out of line or if you voice your concern, then there's a consequence for that. And then we're going to move on to trustee Dolores Rhodes. Here's what she had to say, which is pretty much in line with what Deborah had to say. We are here for the faculty, the students, the parents. We believe in open communication. We're thinkers. You've got to be able to express your views. If we can't express them, I worry about this faculty and staff. Can they express them? We must be able to use our voices, work collaboratively for every student that comes into this building. The only thing that Mr. Thunderbird is guilty of, the only thing, is speaking out openly. There are lesser consequences. And yes, I talked to Tannis Nelson. She's the president of the North Carolina Association of Parliamentarians. She noted that if the board had legitimate concerns about Funderburk, it could have chosen a less extreme option, noting that the highly severe action taken by the board, I mean, they removed him. That potentially should have been backed by more concrete evidence. And that a censure could have been, that's in Robert's Rules of Order, which the trustees say that they follow. This was also in their toolbox, but they did not use it. Yeah. And to Rhodes' point about the culture here, it's a difficult thing to measure in any organization, but there's certainly an impression that what happens in the boardroom reflects on what's going on in the college as a whole. And in the last week, you and I have both spoken to students and instructors at CFCC who say, look what happened to Ray. If that happened to him, whether or not they agreed with him, whether or not they even liked him, if that happened to Ray for speaking out, my goodness, what would happen to me? And I think an important thing to note here real quick is that we're familiar with thinking about you know, college professors in universities where you have tenure, which provides pretty significant protection for professors who want to take a stand on something inside the university or in the outside world. 
Uh, that is not the case in CFCC. No, they're on nine-month contracts that are, again, renewed yearly. And I will note that it is in the employee handbook that instructor staff cannot freely speak to the media. They have to go through the community relations office. I will say that New Hanover County Schools, they recently changed their policy so that they can speak freely if they'd like. So it's not just all public employees can't speak. It's just when they decide that that's the policy, that's what they do. So moving on, we heard from Commissioner and Trustee Jonathan Barfield. When you interpret an email or text and it's taken out of context, it can get you in a whole lot of trouble. If you follow my emails with county government, I very rarely email anyone because the words can be taken out of context, and I very rarely text as well. I'd rather have a stern conversation with someone and find out exactly what their, their concerns are. So if I'm asked to vote to remove someone based on what I've heard tonight, I couldn't do that. And I know that the end game, I believe the community college is going to lose financially. Having gone through this before with my board of commissioners trying to remove a board member and being on the losing side, I think Cape Fear Community College is going to eventually lose financially. And that burden is going to be on the backs of the taxpayers here because the money is going to come from county government in the end. I understand what you believe, but I need more than just belief. So Commissioner and Trustee Barfield there is talking about the amount of weight that was put on McLeod's interpretation of the evidence, a statement from someone that he was assigning meaning to or trying to conjecture what Ray Funderburg's intent and desire was when that was his opinion. So that was the first part of what Barfield was saying there. The second part is a, if you've been in the area for a while, a thinly veiled reference to former County Commissioner Brian Berger, who was removed from office using an obscure procedure called a motion. Berger sued and it cost the county over $100,000 in legal fees. So just to be clear, it wasn't like Berger got a huge settlement against the county. So what Barfield is saying is that if this were to go to court, not talking about a settlement, just the cost of litigating it could be pretty significant. Yeah, and we are putting in a public records request for the past 18 months post the records that we have on what they have been paying Warden Smith for consulting about Funderburg. We'll, we'll get that number, we're hoping. All right, moving on, Trustee Paula Sewell made a point of saying, well, I'll let her say it. One of my only biggest concern is if this issue is not addressed and handled in the manner that it needs to be. What are we saying to our faculty and our students? Because there are consequences for people's actions. Paula Sewell was on the board in 2020 when WECT broke all of the stories on the alleged toxic work environment, where we have in the reporting that Jim Morton and Michelle Lee were pressuring their former IT director and HR director to break into the computer system to find out who wrote a critical email of them. It also came out that Morton said that staff and faculty are easily replaceable if they fail to get in line. A lot of people have commented and reached out to us to say it felt tone deaf at the least that Sewell would say something like actions have consequences when it appears that college president Jim Morton has not suffered the consequences of any of his actions. I will put an asterisk on this, a caveat, and say that 
while what board members do to each other, whether that's a censure or a removal, has to be public by state law. Discipline for an employee can be more private. In fact, a lot of it is protected by state law. So if Morton had been brought into, say, Bill Cherry's office and given a dressing down, that would not be a public record. All we can see as journalists and the public is whether or not someone's salary changes and whether or not someone's position changes. But based on that, it does seem like the board has enthusiastically and expensively supported Morton. Right. And I will say briefly, where Ann McAdams left off for WECT, I picked the stories back up and there are more questions about how they have treated employees who have left the college. And I have those people on the record stating some unethical behavior on on the part of the administration and Morton himself and the trustees for ignoring their concerns. Yeah, actually, we have too much reporting to get into right now. We will have links for that, uh, all of that on the page, though. And real quick, before we go on to the final act, so to speak, of this hearing, I want to note that trustee Robbie Collins used his time to prompt Jason McLeod to make his case against Funderburk all over again. Uh, McLeod basically got to rehash all of the allegations against Funderburk. Funderburk complained about this, saying, hey, I too would have liked a chance to basically make my own closing arguments. Uh, And Collins, as people will remember from your reporting, Rachel, had been on the CFCC board. His tenure had expired. Jim Morton's office and Bill Cherry had put some pressure on the New Hanover County School Board to reappoint him instead of Funderburk. The school board resisted that pressure and unanimously appointed Funderburk. But Collins got back on the board anyway. He was the choice from the county to replace Jimmy Hopkins after Hopkins was unceremoniously removed from the board. So we're going to move on to the last minute allegations that we heard that were not a part of the hearing. And here we have Bill Cherry starting with the first one. To demonstrate how upside down Mr. Funderburk is, on September 22nd, 2022, after the first board meeting, Mr. Funderburk was taking the elevator to the parking garage with a CFC employee. Mr. Funderburk volunteered that his job, quote, was to be a pain in the butt. He also stated that someone has to do it. That statement tells me clearly he doesn't know his job as a trustee. So a couple of things here. One, this was, again, not an allegation that had been introduced at any other part of the hearing. Two, it is, again, anonymous and secondhand. We would call this hearsay in court, and it would be thrown out. And it's impossible to ignore that this came from September. So Bill Cherry had been holding on to this for quite some time. Cherry also had a second last minute allegation where he claimed that the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools was going to investigate the college because of Funderburk's activity. Uh, He provided no evidence for this. And when we spoke to Sachs, they told us emphatically, no, we are not investigating Cape Fear Community College. We also spoke to Dale Falwell, who we'll hear a little bit more from later in the show, who, in addition to being sort of a well-connected guy as state treasurer, also sits on the state community college board, also told us, no, he had not heard anything about an investigation. Funderbrook did get a brief opportunity to push back. He kind of made the opportunity, uh, pushed back about this a little bit and said, well, you know, have you spoken to Sachs? And Cherry said, no. And... He said, but, you know, I know that they're now going to come down because we've notified the state college board. And Funderburg said, well, they could say the problem is you, not me. And I thought that was interesting because when I asked Dale Falwell about this, his quote was, and I'm paraphrasing here roughly, it's kind of funny 
how God made our hand, that when we point a finger at someone, there are three fingers pointing back at ourselves. Right. And for some people, this has prompted the question, what is the relationship between Bill Cherry and Jim Morton? Because for Jimmy Hopkins and for Rafe Underbrick, this seemed to be about Bill Cherry and the board under Bill Cherry defending Jim Morton from criticism or retaliating against his enemies or people who had criticized him or differed with him. And we do know that Bill Cherry owned Air Wilmington, a company that did business with the airport for many, many, many years, uh, while Jim Morton was in charge of the finances there. We know that Jim Morton and Bill Cherry have some mutual friends and relationships through the Wilmington area economic development world, and they also have some social ties. And it came up in the Assembly's reporting that they have a connection to the Cape Fear Men's Club as well. So we have some entanglements here between these two men. Absolutely. And and that's been a part of the overall reporting over the last couple of years is this recurrent question about why Jim Morton is being compensated so richly. Because unlike previous presidents, he does not hold an advanced degree. Dr. Ted Spring and Dr. Amanda Lee both obviously had doctorates. And the CFCC board didn't even do a search. They just hired Morton, and he didn't have any experience in academics. So there's always been this lingering question about Morton and why is his performance being celebrated and compensated so vigorously. So that's still an unanswered question. Yeah, $300 and about $22,000, one of the top in the state. And I wanted to make mention again that Bill Cherry, like a lot of the trustees, came back to... You are supposed to go through Jim and Michelle. You're not to go through anybody else. And I forgot to mention earlier that Bill Rivenbark more or less said the same thing. He was also lockstep in you go to Jim and Michelle and that I wish I could be home watching TV instead of dealing with this. Yeah, his exact quote was something to the effect of if this had all gone through Jim, we'd all be home watching TV right now, which is you know not what all of us do with our evenings, but we get the sentiment. The last thing I'll say about this is that that point was really what this seemed to be about, was that Funderburk was very clear that with no disrespect to Jim Morton, that he wanted to hear from boots on the ground people. He made the analogy to his daughter, who I believe is in the Marines, saying that she wants to hear from people who are on the front line. Even if there are people with ranks in between them, she, she really wants that feedback. That's what he wanted. And he said, Jim Morton might present a great report, but that's only one report. He wanted to hear other information streams. And that just seemed to be unacceptable to Cherry and the board. To wrap up what happened at that hearing, I mean, this is how Ray responded to those last-minute allegations. And we will talk about in our next segment about Cherry and McLeod being visibly upset about Ray talking to the media. And the final, the last part of the meeting blew me away. It was as if Mr. Cherry was unloading everything from the beginning of my time there. It wasn't about the two events. It was, you've been a problem all along. The interesting thing about that is I've only publicly talked about maybe three things. The president's raise, the fact that we lost the ocean ship for a semester, which hurt the kids, the pulling of Mr. Hopkins off the board, which I, and a lot of people agree that was not right. And the last meeting where I said, I believe we should have an independent survey of climate of the faculty and staff. So again, those issues that Funderburg spoke about publicly on the record 
were the president's raise, Jim Morton's raise, which he told us at the time he had not even been presented with any information. He didn't even know how much Jim Morton was making at the time. He, again, said very candidly, no disrespect to Jim Morton. I simply can't vote on something without any evidence to back it up. So it wasn't like he was openly saying Jim Morton should be fired or Jim Morton doesn't deserve this. He just didn't have the information. The ocean ship was a very complicated situation with the marine tech program, which, Rachel, you've documented at great length. We'll have a link to that on the page. But the bottom line was there were unanswered questions. Students had lost out on a significant opportunity that they had paid for through their tuition. And there were questions about it. And he wanted to ask those questions openly. And, of course, the removal of board member Jimmy Hopkins by former New Hanover County Chair Julia Olson Bozeman. That was a complicated situation. Hopkins told us that he'd had a disagreement with Morton, and shortly afterwards, Julia Olson Bozeman, who also has connections to the airport and uh, sat on the airport board for a while, Olson Bozeman just removed him. And there were some real legal questions about whether that was even allowable. State statute makes it pretty clear the process for removing a trustee as evidenced by this very hearing. It doesn't seem like the county has any ability to undo an appointment to the community college board once that appointment is made. And Hopkins actually considered filing a lawsuit to fight this. He th- he felt he was on very good legal grounds to do that. But ultimately, he knew it would cost the college quite a bit and somewhat honorably said, I'm not going to go that route. Now, whether or not there were other things that Hopkins might have not wanted to come out in court, also possible. That's been suggested to us. But these were all very public issues about which there were really important and I would say reasonable questions. Funderbrick asked them publicly And it's his opinion that he was punished for that. So that's where we're going to leave it for just a moment. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with a lot more. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we're talking about Cape Fear Community College. Now, the day after the hearing to remove former trustee Ray Funderburk, he sat down with us at the HQR studios and laid out a number of alleged incidents that I think shed light, or at least potentially shed light, on the way things were working at the college board. These are things we've heard before, things that we've been unable to report because we did not have a first-hand witness. But now we do. Rachel, do you want to introduce this first thing that he told us about? Yes, this is about the raise for President Jim Morton this past July, and he received some calls even before he was sworn in on that raise. I had three phone calls, two from Mr. Cherry and one from uh, Michelle. Each of those phone calls told me that it was an important vote tonight and I had to be ready and urged me to vote for the raise for Jim Morton which kind of left me puzzled. So they told you how to vote? They were trying to. I wouldn't say they told me, but they were urging me that they were lobbying. And part of that bothered me because the executive secretary was doing that too. And that's Ray Funderburg talking about Michelle Lee, who's the executive secretary that runs Jim Morton's office. And that's a call he got before he had even really taken the oath of office, I believe. That's right. And we've said earlier that he just didn't even have the information to make an informed vote. That is why he made that choice. I said, well, what were the phone calls like? And he said, I just listened, according to him. He just listened to what they had to say. But he was, like he said, just there. He was puzzled and confused. 
And now we're going to move on to the fallout of him not voting, the sole person that did not vote for Jim Morton's raise. So he got a call from Bill Cherry, the chair, and said, hey, we need to talk about you talking to WHQR and WECT. He talked to us and just gave a brief comment on why he didn't vote for Jim Morton. And this was the meeting that he had with Cherry. And I walked into the room and there were three people in there, Mr. McLeod, Mr. Cherry, and Mr. Gray. And uh, I didn't sit down. I said, do I need counsel? And Mr. Gray said, no, you don't need counsel. And uh, Mr. Cherry said, I just asked him to sit in to clarify things if we need him. And I looked at him before I sat down. I said, have I done anything wrong? He said, oh, no. I said, okay. So I sat down and the first thing Mr. Cherry said to me was, you don't speak for the board of trustees. I said, I know. I said, but I used the personal pronoun I. I was explaining a vote I made, which the public should know why I made a vote, because we're spending money. And I will say that uh, trustee and commissioner Jonathan Barfield also noted this, that he he said, look, I the chairman speaks for the board, but Barfield, who's not the chairman, he said, I talk to the press all the time, uh, you know, with no repercussion, implying that Funderbook speaking to the press about why he voted a certain way should not have had any repercussions tied to it. Yeah. And for the school board, for example, yes, we want to go to chair Pete Wildeboer, but we've cited other people on the board and how they weigh in on certain things as well. I mean, that's pretty standard practice. And we know that the board chair is the representative speaking for the board, but individual board members can weigh in too. Like Ray said, I'm explaining my vote because we are spending money. And speaking of money, we do know that Ken Gray charges $325 an hour for his services. So he was there. Right. And speaking of legal fees, there was one more thing that Ray Funderburg told you in the interview that I wanted to touch on. And that is during this meeting with Bill Cherry and McLeod and Gray that he was pulled into, Cherry accused him of costing the college money. So here's that excerpt from the interview. And then he said, you have cost the college a lot of money. I said, I don't understand. What are you talking about? He said, you wouldn't believe all the requests for freedom of information things we have, we've gotten and we have to answer them. I said, that's not my fault. That's not my fault at all. He also blamed you last night for the massive attorney fees. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up this moment in your interview with Ray Funderburg for two reasons. The first is that there is good documentation that legal spending at Cape Fear Community College significantly spiked around 2020, around the time of Ann McAdams reporting for WECT. It went from a few thousand dollars a month to a period where the college spent almost $50,000 in a, in a two-month period. And the college fought very hard to not turn over those legal spending uh, documents. And when they did, they were heavily redacted. So we can't actually say how much of that money was spent on redactions and legal review for documents that were eventually turned over to the press as part of uh, public records requests. That's the FOIA. Uh, FOIA is the federal version um, that, that Sherry was probably referring to in that conversation. So that spending long predates Ray Funderburg's time on the board. So blaming him for that didn't make much sense to me. Uh, and again, that's, that's an allegation that Funderburg said happened in this meeting, but Bill Cherry also publicly made it at the end of the hearing last week. The second thing is that blaming anyone 
for the costs of FOIA or public records requests is really not in keeping with the spirit of the law. What FOIA and open records laws say is that those documents and that public information belongs to the public. And if a lawyer has to go through and redact things because you know, certain things are protected by statute, then so be it. But to blame someone, to blame a trustee or an employee or anyone for the cost of complying with the law, for giving the public what belongs to them, that's, that's just not what open records and FOIA law is, is all about. Right. And now we're going to move on to another event that Ray Funderburg said happened at the November Board of Trustees meeting. Ray Funderburg tried to give a statement about the legality of Jimmy Hopkins' removal. I was there and I saw that Jason McLeod and Bill Cherry quickly called for attorney-client privilege for a personnel matter and they went into closed session. And now Funderburg is telling us what this closed session was about because it sounds like it wasn't under the letter of the law. Uh, They essentially asked me why I was doing this. Why did I want to do something like this? Why did I think that that my statement that I read to them, why did I think it affected the integrity of the board? And I said, the board has bylaws. And the bylaws say, this is the way you get rid of a trustee. We aren't following this bylaw. And they said, why do you want to bring this up? Uh, Some of it was essentially just anger. And I checked with Amanda Martin of Duke Law School's First Amendment Clinic And she said, yes, if the board was asking Ken Gray questions about the legality of Jimmy Hopkins' removal, that is appropriate. How these closed sessions are supposed to work are trustee question to Ken Gray. There is not supposed to be any type of discussion. But what Ray is saying here is that basically the entire session was a discussion amongst trustees. And it was about him. It wasn't about asking legal questions. It sounded like they were giving comments that what he was doing was inappropriate. Yeah, we've had this conversation many times, and I imagine we will continue to have it. But the spirit of the law is that there are important things that should not be shared with the public because they could actually harm the public. This could be a determination of a personnel issue, right? If someone is not guilty, having that information put out there could be damaging. Or if it's a real estate transaction, if the public finds out about it and people buy up the land and the taxpayers are paying much more for that land because that information got out. These are the reasons, at least on paper, that these things are protected. But the spirit of the law also says what you can't do is use closed session to protect the reputation of an institution or to hide the fact that there's a division over an issue. That has to be done in public, although from Funderbrook's account, it wasn't. That's right. And we're going to move on to Funderburk's big takeaway after all of this, what happened at the March 8th hearing, and then what happened with this pressure after he voted not to give Jim Morton a raise and talk to the media and then make a statement about Jimmy Hopkins' removal. You know, after my foray into this, I'm amazed. I went into last night not really optimistic. I knew after my first meeting the deck had been stacked. I don't fully understand it. And what's amazing is the people who do the work do it in spite of the people at the top, not necessarily because of them. People spend money on buildings and things, and that supposedly is good. And we have a lot of buildings and things. 
but buildings and things don't necessarily do the job. And that's what they're concentrating on, and I think they should also concentrate on the people who do the work. And I have been approached by a lot of the people who do the work, and they are scared. We also have been approached by those same people. They're scared of retribution, and they say that a lot of people are. And this here hints to the reporting on CFCC that has been happening since 2020, is that people fear for their jobs, they want to talk about unethical behavior or something is going wrong at the college and they want light on it, but they know the reality of that nine-month contract. So Mr. Funderburk said that he's been talking to these employees and they're scared, and we also have been talking. I think I'm up to two dozen people that I've had to talk to on and off the record about how the administration runs that college. And what he's saying here and is that the people who make that college run, the instructors, the staff, they are doing the best that they can and they're doing a good job is what he's saying. But we're looking at the administration and some of the reporting is not very supportive of them doing the best job that they could. Okay, and we should add a note here that last Thursday, Rachel, you reached out to Bill Cherry and other top officials to get their side of the story and to fact check or confirm some of the things that Ray Funderburg told us. We have not heard back from them. We, you know, that invitation remains open. We're happy to report their sides of things. But for now, we only have Funderburg's account. We did not even get a no comment. We got radio silence. Yes. Um, And I should also say that the evening of the hearing on March 8th, WECT, myself and several other people asked Chair Bill Cherry for a comment or an interview. He said no. And that is typical. I've never been able to get a comment from him either. All right. Well, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear some responses to Funderbrake's removal. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith talking about the removal of now former Cape Fear Community College trustee Ray Funderburg. Now, one of the first people we wanted to talk to when this happened was State Treasurer Dale Falwell. Uh, Falwell is, in addition to being the treasurer, a member of the State Community College Board. He is also, because of a number of real estate transactions, including some involving the college, very familiar with the college board, our local government. So we value his opinion on this. And we asked him, okay, with what you've seen happening at Cape Fear Community College, do you think a higher level of oversight is necessary? Here's what he had to say. What strikes me, especially after last week, is that the president of the community college and maybe some others just don't really care what the North Carolina Community College system or its board has to say or would have to say about anything going on there. We also asked Falwell for his general thoughts on what happened. And I think he was pretty circumspect. He refrained from disparaging anyone directly. But he voiced something that I think a lot of other people have also felt. And that is that in our reporting, Rachel, your reporting and WECT's reporting, there is a lot of negativity. It's not good PR for the college. And it does overlook the good work that is done in the college. The great students, the, the dedicated instructors, the, the really great work that happens. And so Falwell really put his finger on that. 
the sadness of this is that, I mean, this was one of the uh, top performing uh, community colleges in the system has provided a, a tremendous level of upward mobility and joy of achievement to its students for a long period of time. So anything, any controversy, any meeting, any lack of transparency, any lightning striking twice that takes away from that is a missed opportunity. And Dale Falwell has said on the record in his 17 years in being in public service, he has never seen a removal of a trustee of a board, and he's now seen it twice. He was also vocal when Jimmy Hopkins was removed from the board, too. He also weighed in. And you also reached out to our local reps on the state college board who directed you to the chair of the state board, uh, Burr Sullivan. And when we reached out to Burr Sullivan, he said, this is a local matter and it stays there. So no one is coming from Raleigh to address the situation. Yeah, and we also reached out to a SACS representative. They oversee the accreditation of the college, and this person was Belle Whelan, and she said that they're not investigating the college. So that's where we're at. And let's move on to a lot of the Marine Tech students when they're ship captain resigned. They couldn't go out on their crews where they do research and they understand how to use the equipment out at sea. They lost out on that opportunity last fall. They came in support when Ray was questioning the president about what happened here. A lot of those students came in support and wanted to know what Jim Morton's answers were. And I talked to one student. He is a Marine Tech freshman at the college, and his name is Blue Takagi. But it's a bit concerning to me that the only trustee who actively spoke out in favor of my program, as well as the only trustee who appeared to do anything at all to question the leadership of the college, the only one who appeared to not simply nod and go along with everything has been removed, and that's somewhat concerning to me. Now that he's gone, what happens if something like this happens again? Then we won't have anyone on the board trying to support our program, and that's concerning. And that's a sentiment I can say we have heard from quite a few people. So in the last couple of minutes we have here, let's talk about what's next. Right. We have filed a number of public records requests in an attempt to get more information. This is not the end of this story. We certainly don't want to pretend that we know the whole story, but we hope that public records will help, whether that's about SACS accreditation issues, we're looking at uh, salaries of top employees, we're looking at emails and texts for the weeks that led up to the hearing, we want to look at attorney's fees over the last 18 months, and we want to look at emails between Vice President Brandon Guthrie and the instructor that was at the center of these allegations. We have it on good authority who this person is, And we have heard, at least anecdotally, that his version of events may not be what McLeod represented to the Board of Trustees. We don't know that for sure. We're hoping that these public records help us tell that story more accurately and fully. Yeah, because the public at this point, since it's it's been such a public process, needs to understand the validity of these allegations. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I want to say that if Ray Funderburk violated policy, if Ray Funderburk was as dangerous to the college as Chair Bill Cherry said he was, I mean, Cherry at the end of the meeting said, this man will defy the board, he will tear down the administration and thereby destroy the college. If that's true and public records show it, we will report it because that's important for people to know. But if it's not and it sheds some light on the story in a way 
that confirms what people have been saying in the, in the comments of our stories and phone calls and emails, that this was intimidation followed by retaliation. We will report that as well. But Rachel, we know it will be a fight to get some of these documents. Yes, because we've had to fight with them in the past. I've had to fight with Ken Gray and his law firm saying that budget codes are protected information. Um, I know that they are not because I got them from the state board. They sent me that information. They also tried to fight me in Duke Law School when we tried to get last year's survey results, and that survey was done by the college, not a third party. And during this process of getting those survey results, they said I was harassing them for asking for information that is publicly available and within the rights of public records law. They also tried to protect a name of a Marine Tech alum who sent an email that was very critical of the administration's decision to change the compensatory leave policy. And they claimed FERPA, but FERPA law had to get two lawyers weigh in on this that FERPA only protects while the student is at the college. Once they leave the college, that is not protected by FERPA. So that email would not be protected. Um, They did unredact that name. And let's talk about if Ray's account of that closed session is true, then parts of that were illegal. So we're up against some challenges here. For sure. So stay tuned. The story is not over. But unfortunately, today's show is... So, Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks to our WHQR production team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fernell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program, and I think you might, or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.